From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. When those less fortunate are faced with a serious diagnosis like HIV, they are also up against obstacles to seeking and staying on treatment. Thanks to advances in antiretroviral therapy, or ART, a diagnosis of HIV is no longer a death sentence. India, the country with the third largest HIV-positive population in the world, now offers ART for free to anyone who needs it. So why are only half of those diagnosed with HIV in India on treatment? And what can be done to get more people on treatment? Dr. Brian Chan of Brigham and Women's Hospital is trying to answer these questions. In Chennai in Southern India, Dr. Chan is conducting a mixed method study to understand the factors that keep people from starting on and sticking with ART, including social stigma and poverty and how to overcome these barriers. Dr. Brian Chan is an infectious disease physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and an instructor in medicine at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chan. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You study global health and infectious disease, and you're currently running a mixed methods research study in southern India, looking at why people with HIV stay in care or drop out. Could you describe the population you're working with? Sure. Yeah, I work at uh, the Wire Gaitande uh, Center for AIDS Research and Education. It's the oldest and largest uh, organization, private organization um, treating HIV in India. They have a pretty large patient population, which is mostly self-described heterosexual uh, people, two-thirds men, one-third women who, who come to seek HIV care. And these are people who are, some are poor, some are rich, uh, and some are you know, day laborers, and some are wealthy professionals. And they all have HIV diagnosis, and they all um, come to YRG care because it's known as a good place to have uh, HIV care. Can you just mm-hmm. give me a background about how you got into global health and infectious disease? Yeah, I was interested in infectious diseases as a medical student and a resident, but I didn't really know what my niche would be. In 2010, I was interested in global health. My wife got a position in Liberia. We both went together. We lived on an orphanage. It's called Liberia Mission, and it's just outside the capital. We took care of more than 150 kids who uh, were affected by the Civil War in Liberia. So my wife ran the orphanage in school, and I was the mission doctor. Um, and in addition to that, uh, I got an opportunity to uh, to help with a scale-up of a community health worker project uh, where we placed community health workers who had HIV themselves as experienced peers. And these peer navigators or peer accompaniers uh, were tasked with helping people who are newly diagnosed with HIV stay within uh, care uh, at 19 government ART centers around Liberia. So this was a very interesting project. We, I had to go to a bunch of different centers around the country. There's only one, basically, only one working road in the country. And so we would uh, go out into the bush and we'd try and see as many facilities as we could and, and meet these people. And I was really struck by the fact that although we're sending these people to try and help with the issue of loss to care, loss to follow-up, we actually didn't know the factors that were really uh, causing people to be lost to care. We had a, a, maybe a, a guess, a sense, but we actually didn't have um, 
a real good notion of what were individual factors that people were facing. So after I finished this work uh, in Liberia, uh, I be that, that germinated in me a, a, a feeling of wanting to know more about that in, in other settings. So my wife got pregnant. We came back home to Boston. I started infectious disease training, and I decided to look at this issue in more, de in more, in more depth and really look at what's causing loss of care. And I had the opportunity to work in India, which is a place I worked in earlier as part of a project on quality, quality, uh, quality of care. So I was familiar with it. I wasn't that familiar with the HIV epidemic in India, but I really got up to speed quickly. So uh, at that point in, 20, uh, in 2012, I started my, my research at YRG Care in, in, in Chennai, where they have a very large uh, patient population of people with HIV. Um, how are you conducting your research, and what tools are you using in your study? Well, uh, working at YRG Care, I, I saw that there was, uh, as in many other parts of the world, a big problem with loss to follow-up, meaning people should be on ART or antiretroviral therapy to treat their HIV, but they, for some reason, can't take it or don't want to take it or they they don't seek care after some time. So I became interested in the issue of what's going on with this uh, problem because it's pretty well studied in Africa where there's a huge uh, pandemic as most everyone knows. India doesn't have a, a pandemic in the same way, but um, their overall prevalence, prevalence is lower, but they still have a third largest HIV population in mm. the world just by sheer dint of having a very large population to begin with. So I became interested in, in, in thinking, like, why is loss to follow-up so high in India as well? And they have a situation where only half the people diagnosed with HIV are on ART and are, are effectively treated. So I thought, well, how can we get at this, at this issue? So I designed a study where we had basically two prongs. The first was a qualitative study, um, actually two sets of qualitative studies where we looked at um, a, a group of patients who were either lost to care or were at high risk for loss of care due to poverty or, or other life circumstances. And we did focused semi-structured questionnaires where we really talked in depth these patients one-on-one -on -one and tried to figure out why they were lost to care or why they were able to be resilient and not lost to care. So that was a study that we completed uh, last year and we're actually writing out the manuscripts now. And then the second part of the research is a more quantitative study where we take all the patients who are presenting for HIV care or coming back to care after some time of absence. And we're trying to give them a large screening questionnaire, long screening questionnaire, and we're testing people for whether they have levels of poverty or depression or alcohol use or any kinds of things that we think might be important. And we're gonna see what predicts loss to follow-up or lack of virologic suppression down the road. So we're looking at both mechanisms, both the qualitative study and the quantitative study, and trying to use both of them um, to really try and figure out what are the important factors that predict loss of care. When do you administer the questionnaire if there's a possibility that they wouldn't be coming in for their care? How do you actually reach the people? Well, we, we reach them um, basically when they were coming in, either after diagnosis, they were just freshly diagnosed with HIV, okay. or perhaps they had had a long absence, and then they came back to clinic, and they were saying, I want to be back in care. And we said, okay, you can come back to care. Um, can you enter a study, and we'll just talk to you in depth about what happened and what what you're face what you're facing going forward. What are some of the reasons that people you're studying don't seek care in the first place or stop seeking care? That's a very complicated and interesting mm -hmm. question, um, and we're seeing a lot of themes, but some of the major themes are revolving around poverty and stigma, mm -hmm. and those are related issues. 
uh, as you may know, HIV remains one of the most stigmatized diseases mm. that we face. It's tied up with issues of poverty and morality, sexuality. Mm-hmm. So when people are diagnosed with HIV or fear they might have HIV, they often don't want to share a diagnosis with people either close to them or even people in the community. Mm. So antibacterial therapy is freely available in the government in India. But what's surprising is that people often don't want to come to these clinics that are uh, offering free ART. And one reason is that they feel that the government maybe uh, has poorer level quality. Mm. And the second reason may be that if they go to these clinics, people might know that they have HIV and say, look at, you know, look at this person, they must have HIV, they must be unclean. Mm. So that actually will seek to go hundreds of miles away, away from the government and to YRG Care, which is a private facility. So we have lots of patients who are coming eight to 12 hours away from home to go to YRG Care. Mm. And they'll start their, their, their HIV treatments and they may have good intentions, but if they have any kind of problem with the ART, whether it's side effects or whether it's some kind of, of economic life shock mm-hmm. that prevents them from making the second visit to Wired Care or to, um, to come back and pick up medications, then they're going to they're gonna have a very high threshold to come back to care. They'll be, they'll be easily lost. And um, we also see that patients, if they're feeling healthy, they might rationally decide, you know, I'm feeling relatively healthy. Mm-hmm. I don't think HIV is really affecting me quite yet. And I don't want to spend all the money to get care. I don't want to go all, I don't go, want to go all this way and at risk being exposed to someone with HIV. Um, and then, so they may rationally choose not to see treatment. And that's a problem because we know that once people, when people start treatment early, mm-hmm. uh, that's better for their overall health. But it's also better for people in terms of preventing transmission to others. Mm. So we really have a public health problem with with this uh, issue in India. Mm-hmm. And are there any things that you're doing to kind of mitigate the stigma? That's a complicated question, along with your complicated answer about the previous question. But are there any things that you can do that you guys are thinking about doing? That's a tough question, because stigma is something we know is prevalent. Mm-hmm. But what do you really do about stigma? And that's something I'm interested in as infectious disease physician is, mm-hmm. you know, what can we actually do that's that's plausible and 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 um, scalable to affect stigma and reduce it. And you can think about this on an individual level with the patients themselves, and you can think about it on a societal level as well. So on an individual level, people with HIV may face stigma, and you might um, you might have people who are uh, who are going to be uh, needing tools and ways to be resilient against stigma. So you might have some trainings that are designed to give people greater feeling of self-efficacy, uh, uh, ways to to be more empowered. So that's one possible approach. Uh, I think the more difficult question is how to reduce stigma in the general population, because you really want to reduce the levels of overall stigmatizing attitudes in the community. You want people to not feel that people HIV are unclean or dirty or at risk mm-hmm. of transmitting to you. And, and so you might think a media campaign might be helpful. So there are media campaigns that have been going on in many countries around the world since the advent of effective treatment, and yet we are still seeing that stigma isn't really mm-hmm. being reduced much. And we we recently published a study uh, that shows in Africa that the levels of overall stigma have not really reduced much in uh, mm-hmm. in at least in Africa. So that that lends a question of is it is it something that we can do in terms of contact interventions where we have prominent people with HIV tell their stories, disclose their status to, to, to people, and, and, and let people know that people with HIV are, 
are regular people. And in the U.S., we had a situation in 1991 where Magic Johnson came out mm-hmm. setting HIV, and that really changed the discussion here in the U.S. So there are some countries, and India might be one of them, where a similar situation might be needed, where you need some prominent people with HIV to really show their stories and make HIV seem like not a death sentence or something that just affects people who are immoral. Mm. What do you hope to understand from the research you're doing now in India? Uh, I'm focusing, as I said, on what 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 is really important in in causing people to be lost to care in India who have HIV. So you could think that if we figure out some of these factors, if it's poverty, if it's disclosure concerns, the concern about whether I can disclose my status, share with people my status, if it's stigma, if it's depression, if it's alcohol, if we figure out what factors are important, then we can do two things. One would be potentially you could design an intervention, and this intervention would be multi-pronged and attack some of, uh, some if, some of, if not all, of the factors that are, are causing um, loss of follow-up. So mm-hmm. you could have a, a antidepressant, you could have cognitive behavioral therapy, you could have transportation incentives, you have a disclosure, um, disclosure intervention where you help people disclose their status. That could be one part of it. So designing an intervention that would be effective and maybe people could pick, uh, pick some certain modules um, uh, of the intervention. Mm-hmm. And the second thing that we can benefit from is perhaps creating a screening tool. So if I, if I show that uh, three or four factors are important for predicting loss of care, then we could rationally screen people who come into care, you know, and even screen them at certain intervals during care, maybe, maybe every three months, every six months. And then if they screen positive for these factors, then we can design interventions and we can, we can target interventions for these people. Mm-hmm. So I see this being a tool that could be helpful not only in India, but but rationally could be used in any country with a right. with a burden of HIV. Before my life as an HIV researcher, I was interested in the issue of quality of care in low and middle income countries. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to work on a project that looked at uh, using standardized patients in India to look at the quality of care given by practitioners in India. We had a sense that the quality of care given was pretty poor, but how do you really measure that? And so it was thought that perhaps we could train uh, lay people in clinical vignettes and send them to mm-hmm. health facilities and see what kind of care they were actually getting. And these patients would be unannounced. They would, they would look like real patients, and the physician or practitioner wouldn't know that they were really fake patients and really give them the, the kind of care they would normally give. So what we did was we trained um, men and women in three, three vignettes. One was... Uh, a chest pain case, one was a dysentery case, and the third was um, an asthma case. And these were very basic um, bread and butter, what we call bread and butter cases, that any first year or second year medical student would really be able to get with no problem. And we trained them, we, we let them practice on each other, and then we sent them out into the field uh, in clinics around Delhi and then later um, in a state called Madhya Pradesh. And we sent them to clinics um, both humble and lofty, uh, well-trained clinicians versus clinicians with basically no training. Mm -hmm. And what we found was pretty shocking. Uh, We found that the overall quality care was very poor, no matter what kind of clinician you went to, no matter whether it was a public or private facility. And to give you a sense of what I meant, what I mean is uh, we had these 55-year-old men with crushing chest pain. And if they walked up to you and said, I'm having crushing chest pains like an elephant sitting on my chest, and they were sweaty, and they, and they looked they looked bad. Mm-hmm. I think you or I would, would would send them right to the emergency department. Right. But these actual healthcare providers would look at them, and they would may, maybe lay their hands on them for 10 seconds, 
maybe check a pulse, maybe not, maybe check a another vial sign, maybe not. And they would spend maybe two minutes with them and then they would send them out the door with mm. a couple of antibiotics or vitamins or something like that. So it was really a shocking expose in terms of what was being offered in the, in the real world. And mm. this has been a pretty influential uh, study in terms of, uh, of both revealing the issues of quality care in the Indian system, but also uh, also revealing a, a useful way to gauge the quality of care that, that's been used by other researchers mm. since then. And how did this influence what you do now? Did it influence what you do now and what you study and kind of your career trajectory afterward? I think it all ties together because in the same way, I think the HIV care that we give to people is not optimal. We have a sense that we have these very effective treatments. We have these facilities that have been scaled up all over the world, but we're still not doing as well as we should. And we have an idea that what what might be happening to people, but um, there are problems happening on the individual level, on the clinic level, on the societal level that, that still need improvement. And once, uh, if we don't, if we don't get these issues dealt with, we're going to fall f- short of keeping people on treatment and, and virologically suppressed. And if we uh, don't have that under control, we'll never be able to cure the epidemic mm-hmm. or, or stop the epidemic. You've also studied HIV in Liberia and other parts of Africa. What are some of the common issues um, in interventions and treatments between Liberia and India? Both India and, and, and Liberia, it's more of a concentrated epidemic where you have um, relatively high prevalence of HIV among certain key populations, such as um, commercial sex workers, men of sex with men, and in- injection drug users. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas other parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, South and East Africa, you have very high rates of, of or high prevalence of, of HIV. And so you have a really lot of information about HIV that's been done in these high prevalence countries in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and relatively less in places like, like Liberia or, or India. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, to that extent, the issues that I'm interested in India are, are, are important because they've been studied a lot in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, but not so much in, in, in India. I think there's a lot of cross-cutting things that, that happen in places like Liberia and India where mm-hmm. you have issues of stigma, and you have issues of transportation, you have issues of poverty, and a lot of these things are, are going to be important um, in all these places. And it's, and it's just important to figure out locally, you know, what are, you know, what might be particularly important, and, and how these factors fit together. Uh, ultimately, I'd like this research to end up with real solutions, mm-hmm. uh, because solutions are what we need in order to make the epidemic uh, finally a thing of the past. And I think we're still far away in India from really understanding what are even the factors that are causing people to not in care. So we have to figure that step first, and then we're going to look at interventions to see what are important in, in helping people stay in care. So we have those multiple steps left to go. And I'm hoping that after my current grant is finished, that's uh, something I'll be able to look at in multiple facilities uh, in India. Mm-hmm. And then once we do that, then that'll be part of the picture, but not obviously all the picture, but part of the picture of how to over- reduce overall numbers of HIV. In, in a place like India. So I, I'm, I'm one of many researchers looking at this, but this is maybe one piece of the puzzle in terms of how we're gonna finally get to the end of HIV and something we hopefully get to within the generation. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Chan. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Next time on Think Research. The analogy I like is that the Genome Project with the list of genes we got from sequencing the genome 
gave us kind of a parts list. And what we're trying to figure out now is what the wiring diagram is. What's the logic that switches on genes in one situation and switches on a different set of genes in another situation? The new chair of the Department of Biostatistics at the T.H. Chan School of Public Health, John Quackenbush, discusses how he uses network science to study the human genome. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.